This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BREWNINJA21. At the end of the day, the chances of having a problem in a confined space are probably pretty low in most cases, but if you do, the consequences are severe um, and could lead to death, so you do want to be able to get those people out in a hurry, and I think that's out of everything related to confined space, that's probably the number one issue we see that just gets neglected. This week on the show, is your brewery prepared to rescue a team member from a fermenter or other confined space? Do you train and practice it regularly? Or is your plan to just wing it when seconds matter? Hey, my name is Andy Tricoli. I work for Anfeld and we're located in Fort Collins, Colorado. And we service the greater Northern Colorado area. We've done some other episodes on specific OSHA rules. This one seems more complicated. Why is that? Uh, Performance-based standards are generally more complicated, and and the reality is that both the confined space regulation and construction and joint industry are heavily performance-based. While there are prescriptive elements, there's a lot of um, thought process that has to go into uh, adapting things to each worksite and each brewery. So it, it does add a layer of complexity, and then the nature of the work itself is inherently hazardous. Um, entering a confined space is, is just got a lot of issues associated with it, um, and so it lends complexity to the problem. The other issue that we see, it's uh, the when incidents happen in a confined space, unfortunately, often the outcome is serious injury or death, so the consequences are severe in terms of outcome if something goes wrong. Before we get too far, why don't you tell us what exactly triggers a permit space? So a confined space permit um, is required when you enter a permit confined space, and that's distinguished from a confined space. So OSHA regulations at the federal level and the state level 
state level make a distinction between confined space and permit required confined space. So it has to be confined space first. If it is a confined space, then you do a test to see if it's a permit required confined space, and that triggers the permit. The case here, uh, what, what a confined space is large enough to completely enter. Um, it's not designed for continuous human occupancy, and it has a limited means of entry and exit. The um, criteria that I just listed are all required in order to meet the definition. If we define it as a confined space, um, then we look to see if it's permit required. And really, in a nutshell, without going into it, any hazard that exists triggers the fact triggers the permit space. What are some examples of confined spaces versus permitted spaces that we might be familiar with in the brewing industry? So a lot of times, uh, pipe chases can be confused and made into a permit space when they're not. So pipe chases that have normal walk doors, for example, would not be a permit space. Um, but underground pipe chases that have limited means of access and have hazards would be. Um, some people tend to um, want to take any space that has hazards in it and in order to make it safe, turn it into a permit space. And we tend to, we encourage people to resist that temptation. So, you know, if there's a shed outside the brewery or some type of operation going on, they might say, well, we're going to label it as permit required just because it's got a hazard in there. And, you know, that's um, not an appropriate way to do it because it triggers this entire regulation. So, you know, brewery spaces um, abound and it's just a matter of looking at each one. The obvious ones are things like footers, fermenters, um, mash ton, ladder ton, brew vessels uh, of all kinds. Uh, uh, any type of um, space like that would be permit required. Usually in a brewery, it's fairly standardized. Breweries tend to be standard from brewery to brewery. So when you go from one to another, if it's a, if it's permit required confined space in one, it's going to be permit required in another. There are certain circumstances when breweries do wastewater pretreatment or full treatment where there's questions about spaces associated with the wastewater treatment, lift stations and things like that. Um, but typically those are permit required as well. Your TQ article mentions the construction regulation for confined space entry. Why should established breweries care about that? Yeah, that's a great question. So the, um, the general industry regulation has been around a while and I think everyone in the brewing industry is probably very familiar with it. So the, um, the thing about the general industry version is it, because it was written a few years ago, it didn't cover quite everything it needed to. It, it left some things out um, and it wasn't as concise. And so when the construction industry regulation was promulgated by OSHA, they made a deliberate attempt to write it to cover both, it seems. And if you read it, it's designed for construction, but yet it's largely based on the general industry version and it just expands upon certain areas. Um, for example, multi employer coordination. Um, and a few things like that. I talk a little bit about um, gas detection and continuous monitoring versus intermittent monitoring. Um, so there's a handful of things that just enhance confined space entry and make it better. And there's really no reason why a brewery shouldn't adopt that um, because of the qualifying things in there. The, the, the approach is just better. So what are the enhancements in the construction regulation? Yeah, so one of the big ones that I particularly like in, in construction regulations, 
they talk a lot about the term competent person in construction regulations. Several of them require assignment of a competent person, which requires enhanced training. There's a high level of knowledge required. Essentially, a competent person is someone who can um, implement a regulation more completely, has a higher level of knowledge about the regulation, understands the hazards, um, is able to mitigate hazards, has authority delegated from management. So it's it's a nice concept, and it, you see it throughout construction. In general industry, it's really not there. Um, there is no uh, competent person requirement in general industry. So, so that yet if you read a regulation, if you read a safety policy, there's this automatic assumption that the person reading it knows what it says and knows how to do it um, and knows how to implement it. And yet in construction, in general industry all the time, we see when we go to locations, whether it's a brewery or frankly, any industry, people tend to... Um, uh, do things without really understanding what they're doing, and they don't. When they don't know what they don't know, things just get left out, and so it creates these huge gaps in the in the in the um, the construction industry. Confined space regulation it specifically requires assignment of a competent person to, for example, classify confined space. Well, if if we did that in general industry, I think we'd all be better off because being a competent classification requires you to really understand the regulation, have some training and knowledge. Um, and make correct assumptions. And so it's just a nice thing to have on the general industry side because it requires a higher level of training. And when you rely on a classification, um, if it's done by a competent person, it's going to be better. I had a feeling OSHA's definition of a competent person might not perfectly align with mine. Yeah, we joke a lot about that. We teach a lot of classes and one of the, you know, we talk, are you guys competent? Do you feel competent? And, you know, it's, it's how, how do you even know you're competent about anything really? And that's, it's definitely an interesting thing. You know, we joke a lot about it, but the reality is how, how do you know if you're going to sign a competent person, whether you're doing it formally or informally, um, how do you know someone's truly qualified to, to implement a program? whether it's confined space or any other safety program. And that is, that is tricky because usually the people in management that are appointing the people to be competent or to do their work may not even understand the regulations themselves. So there's this huge gap there and it is definitely a tricky thing without a doubt. I'll give you some personal examples of incompetence later on. <laughs> Very good. I have some stories myself. <laughs> So let's talk about continuous monitoring because that sounds like something that could be interpreted lots of different ways. What does OSHA say about that? So the idea of continuous monitor is designed to make sure that you're capturing um, real-time readings of the gases in the space and that if conditions change quickly, you can, um, you can identify it. That's really what they're trying to get at. Um, the challenge is that um, if you don't do that and something changes, for example, um, someone opens a valve or someone does something to do some cleaning or, you know, in the case of welding, if someone's welding in a space, a common problem is an increase of carbon dioxide when you weld inside a small space. So those kind of things um, uh, present hazards. And if you don't continuously monitor, meaning constantly monitor the air with a gas detector, you might miss um, miss it. So the um, idea so how often do you monitor and how do you monitor becomes an interesting conversation and it seems in practice it seems in in when you look at the regulation and read about it it seems quite simple but in reality how people do these things is is quite different from place to place and uh, not everyone continuously monitors they might put a gas detector in a space for just five minutes and then stop monitoring for half an hour 
Um, some people will actually tie a string to a gas detector and drop it into the space so they don't know what the readings are. There's all kinds of things that happen. So this idea of continuous monitoring just ensures that that person standing outside the space knows what's going on at all times. I guarantee you there's at least some brewers listening to this who have no idea what we're talking about right now. Could you give a high-level overview of what some of this equipment is and what it looks like and where you get it? Yeah, it's a great question because it is tricky. One of the questions we get all the time is, what equipment do I need to do confined space entry? Um, so you say, well, I need a gas detector. And right. Say, right, yeah, right. So that's an important one. Well, do I buy a two gas, a three gas, a four gas, a five gas? Do I do a PID, an FID? Do I buy a, you know, do I buy one that's infrared? Do I buy one that's electrochemical? Like the list goes on and it gets complicated. And then the, the manufacturers, the gas detectors want to sell you more and more stuff and different components. And it, it really can be pretty overwhelming. And frankly, the costs are for some of the equipment are, it's quite, quite expensive. And so, and gas detectors are all created equal. So it's a fair question and, and it is something that brewers need to pay careful attention to. You need a good, reliable gas detector from a reputable manufacturer, but regardless of where you buy it from, it also needs to be maintained. And what we find is the purchase is less of a challenge than the maintenance. It's not uncommon to meet brewers or even outside of brewing industry. And they find ga- we find gas detectors that aren't properly maintained or that don't work right, um, which is not an insignificant issue. So on the gas detection side, um, uh, there's a variety. A typical gas detector would be a four gas, which would have oxygen, LEL, which stands for lower explosive limit, and it would have carbon monoxide, and hydrogen sulfide. That's a typical four gas monitor that if a brewer were to say, I need a monitor and they were to go to a vendor and say, provide a gas detector to me, chances are the vendor would give them a four gas model um, uh, with or without a pump. The other things to consider when you buy a gas detector are the fact, does it have a pump or not? Um, Part of the purchase conversation or the purchase thought process is how will you use the gas detector? If you are using the gas detector as an attendant from outside the space, and there should always be one gas detector used in this configuration, you would drop a hose into the space, a sample tube, and then you would use a pump unit so you can draw a sample up into the pump. If you're going to wear a gas detector um, in your breathing zone during an entry to give extra precaution or extra safety to the entry, then you're going to want to probably get a smaller diffusion style. You've got a recommendation for the order in which to read results from monitoring. Talk about that. Yeah, so OSHA, it's not so much my recommendation as OSHA's. Because explosive, um, combustible gas indicators that sense lower explosive limit, um, sense combustible gas, those work by oxygen. You have by having oxygen available. And so the theory goes, if you don't have an oxygen available, will it correctly read? Um, and therefore, hey, let's make sure we have enough oxygen. That's really where that comes from. Um, and the other side of the coin is, the other piece of it is that if 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 uh, you have low levels of oxygen, um, in many cases, it precludes entry unless you have uh, supplied air. So it's just a good check to do initially. Um, it's kind of a go, no go. Because even if you have very low level contaminants, and you might think, well, they're dropping, I could probably jump in here. If there's not enough oxygen, that's not going to happen. So that's where you start. Okay. What about record keeping? I'm guessing monitoring is one of those, if you didn't write it down, it didn't happen kind of things. Yeah, so we OSHA is not really, um, OSHA OSHA regulations at the state or federal level don't always talk about how often you record on the permit. 
the permits we provide clients actually have a spot to write stuff down in terms of the concentrations that you're measuring over time. I like, I tell people just write them down with enough frequency to document that you did it and to remind yourself um, to pay attention to the issues, but not so frequently that it's burdensome. There's really no tried and true um, rule on that, but it is good to document a few times. The, the most important one, to be honest, is the pre-entry reading. When you go into a space, you need to monitor the air before you go in. The entrants need to review it. Everyone involved needs to understand it when they sign the permit. So really that initial reading is the most important, setting the tone and making sure that it's safe before everybody jumps in. After that initial entry, um, then it just becomes preference. You can record every three or five minutes, once every 10 minutes, um, just whatever you feel comfortable with. You specifically call out lowering diffusion-style detectors on a rope into a space. What's wrong with that? Yeah, so that's a common practice, and it's because gas detectors can be expensive, and sometimes people might buy a diffusion-style detector without realizing it's diffusion-style, and then not be able to use it from outside the space. The problem with it is when you lower it down into the space, um, for one thing, if someone's in there, you could drop it. Um, they could strike someone in the head. You could damage the instrument, which would terminate your entry at that point. But um, on the safety side, the other, more importantly, if an alarm goes off and the perm- and the diffusion style detector is hanging in the space, the entrant won't be able to understand what's going on in the space. There's four gases or five gases being read on these units, sometimes six. Which one is going off and what's the concentration? And generally, you pull everyone out anyway. But it, it's not the best way to do it because you can't understand what's going on. Um, I, I think, um, if people feel like they want to have a diffusion style gas detector in that space, it's okay. They should clip that to their pocket or their lapel or somewhere on their chest in their breathing zone and then have a pumped gas detector outside the space as well. But to me, there's really no good way to use a diffusion style sensor without, without being out. It just doesn't work. Um, different gas detectors have different ways to convert diffusion style into pumped um they make pumps that you can plug in so for those folks that ended up buying diffusion style sensors it's worth a call to your dealer oftentimes you can buy add-on pumps and turn it into a pumped model without spending too much money okay that makes sense so what exactly constitutes a hazardous atmosphere so a hazardous atmosphere um the definition for purposes of confined space entry is different than non when we talk about um, for general health hazards in confined space. OSHA is focused on acute hazards, meaning those are things that will either kill you or prevent you from escaping quickly. So a hazardous atmosphere is anything that would do that. Typically, um, anything above ten percent of the lower explosive limit. So methane over ten percent of its lower explosive limit, uh, as an example. Um, would trigger an evacuation and it would be unacceptable entry conditions. Um, when it comes to that, though, in practice, any amount of flammable gas should give people pause for concern. Why is it in there? Where is it coming from? Um, those are big questions, and it's probably going to preclude entry until you figure that out and make sure it's it's zero. When it comes to um, toxic gases, we're talking about um, whatever the OSHA permissible exposure limit is from a legal perspective. But from a um, from a safety practice standpoint, we look to um, American Conference of Government Industrial Hygienist Threshold Limit Values, 
rather than OSHA Pels because they're usually newer, more modern. Um, OSHA Pels, most of them date to the to late 60s, early 70s, and the data obviously changes over time. And, and we want to use more modern numbers to evaluate things. So we looked at ACGH, but regardless, um, when you hit those set points, um, whether it's the OSHA Pel, um, so on and so forth, TLV, NIOSH Rail, you're going to evacuate. Um, now, in practice also, we usually tell people, like, look, if you have anything go off, um, even if it's below the alarm set point on the gas detector, you ought to consider getting out and figuring out what's going on just to be on the safe side. So, so depending on how you do it in a brewery, you can either say, well, everything's at zero, um, and then oxygen is 20.9, which is normal room air. Um, however, if you have a little bit of tolerance um, for some things in the space and you know that they're decreasing and you have your ventilation running and there's just a little bit of residual of something, um, certainly if you go in with one or two or five parts per million of carbon monoxide and you, it literally is a short period of time, I don't think um, people will, I don't think OSHA would have a problem with it. Although again, in practice, it's not recommended. You just should have everything at zero. A lot of a lot of folks, a lot of folks want to get into the space right away and do their work and get back out again. And sometimes there's some time pressure for production reasons, um, and that's the the point of that conversation. Just say, hey, technically, um, it's not the end of the world if you're below acute levels, but um, you know, in our world, in the safety world, let's let's just make sure and let's just have it at zero. You have a very narrow window to be rescued, and frankly, there isn't time. That process takes training and time and is not intrinsically, it, it's not something you can just do when it happens. You have to practice it. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, Try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. This episode is also sponsored by More Beer, Visit morebeerpro.com to browse ingredients, equipment, and more. Master Brewers Podcast is brought to you by RAR North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. RAR North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweet bread, supported by flavors and aromas of hay and nutty character. Suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft-brewed versions of classic lagers. 
Let Rar North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact us at 1-800-374-2739. There's one more sponsor I should mention, and that's Fermentis, a global supplier of active dry yeast. You can listen to Kevin and Marcelo talk about the shelf life and performance of active dry yeast on episode 93. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. Districts Milwaukee and St. Louis both meet March 18th. A couple of our veteran podcast guests will be putting on a webinar on the topic of standardized data collection with ASBC sampling plan. That's going to be on March 26th. There's a Master Brewers webinar on April 13th called To Congress or Not to Congress, a topic you'll find familiar from our 200th episode. District St. Louis meets April 15th. The Master Brewers Brewery Packaging Technology course begins April 21st. And the Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course starts August 15th. There's finally a beer industry conference you can put on your calendar that might actually take place in person. The 2021 Master Brewers Conference will be October 28th through the 30th in Cleveland. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Master Brewers offers a wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Stay current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers. Join today and use offer code BEER2021 to save 20% on dues now through December 31st, 2021. Master Brewers, united we brew. Now back to the show. Let's hear some tips in regards to ventilation and atmosphere monitoring. So in a lot of what times what happens with uh, ventilation is that you might need to get into a space quickly and get out. For example, a larger fermenter, especially if it's a top entry fermenter, um, at a larger brewery and you have a lot of CO2 in there, you're not going to be able to vent that very quickly. And so if you're in a rush and you just run up to the top of the unit and get ready to jump in and you've only been running ventilation for a few minutes, you might be in for a surprise um, just in terms of the volume of CO2 in there, how long it takes to ventilate it. So depending on the blower you're using, it can take some time. So one one thing is set up your ventilation early, set it up first and allow it to ventilate the space um, thoroughly, you know, you could set it up an hour early is not too soon. Um, the other thing that when you set up ventilation, you have to be careful if it's a top entry and you could step into or fall into the space, you have to protect the opening. Horizontal entry, it's a little easier because typically on a fermenter on horizontal entry, the, um, entry point is quite low. Usually it's slightly above the cone somewhere. So when you open it up, the CO2 naturally falls out, um, and the ventilation becomes a little bit easier. Um, so that's one example of, um, a consideration. Um, the other thing that you have to pay attention to is the, uh, ventilation can be challenging under certain circumstances. If you're in a larger space, doesn't typically, we don't typically see it in brew vessels or fermenters, but, um, certain brewers have horizontal, um, uh, vessels. I know one brewer that has what's called chip tanks and they're these very long vessels that you can go in. And you can actually walk several, quite a few feet into it. Um, you want, when you're doing work in there, 
you want to introduce your air, fresh air at the location you're working. Um, since the space is large, if you have work generated ha- atmospheric hazards and you're introducing air at the opening, you're not going to get as good air mixing and it's not going to dilute the concentration of that contaminant as much. So putting the air into the space where you're actually working becomes quite important. Um, so those are a few tips. Um, using good quality blowers that are reliable, that is a challenge. Sometimes people have cheaper units. Um, sometimes people don't use blowers at all and they um, just use natural ventilation. OSHA is very specific on the fact that you have to use continuous forced air ventilation that is mechanical, which usually means an intrinsically safe blower with some length of ducting. What's intrinsically safe? Uh, intrinsically safe, uh, meaning just that it's it's not going to ignite flammable vapors if they're present. So things that are explosion-proof or intrinsically safe are designed around the concept of preventing a fire or an explosion from um, igniting it. Uh, circuitry, um, switches, electric components in the unit n- under normal circumstances when they're not intrinsically safe or explosion-proof can, can cause problems. Um, and be a source of an ignition source for flammable vapor around. Now, in most breweries, we don't have flammable vapors floating around. It's not a typical issue unless you have a water treatment plant. So it's less of a concern, but it's still a good practice to always use intrinsically safe units. You alluded to this earlier, but I assume all of this detection equipment is no different than brewery equipment in that it's going to fail if you don't maintain it. Why don't you talk about some of the things that can go wrong with this equipment and what needs to be done to maintain it? Sure. So on the gas detector side, um, it's, um, they can be really finicky. The sensors don't always last as long as you want them to. They tend to fail when you need them the most sometimes if they're not taken care of. Um, electrochemical sensors have a lifespan. They get used up over time. And they only last so long. And so as they near the end of their service life, they start to become unreliable. Ideally, you would capture that during your monthly calibrations and bump checks to make sure that um, you're replacing those sensors so it doesn't end up being unreliable during an entry. So, What's a bump check? Uh, good question. So two things that we do with gas detectors. One is a bump check. A bump check is simply supplying some gas with some contaminants in there to make sure that the unit works. So, it, hey, it reads the gas and it alarms at the correct set point. It, um, it's not particularly difficult. It just takes a few seconds. Contrast that with an actual calibration. A calibration um, exposes the detector to a very specific concentration of gas and it makes sure that the unit reads the correct concentration. Um, two different things, but all designed to make sure they're functional. Bump checks are done um, usually when simultaneously with a cow because you have a cow gas with contaminants in it, but also bump checks are good to do before you use the gas detector. Um, when it comes to calibration, that's typically can be up to six months or longer sometimes. Manufacturers different rules about how often you calibrate, and they pride themselves on going longer without requiring a calibration, which is great, but we recommend monthly calibrations um, to make sure that the unit functions so that if um, someone in the cellar wants to go grab the detector and go into a space, they can do it quickly and know that it's been done and know that it's reliable. So that monthly check, that usually involves a function check, make sure 
batteries are charged, the batteries are working, all the components are there. So it's just a good habit to get into to every month, check that unit out. All right, cool. Anything else you want to mention in terms of maintenance? Yeah, so a couple of things. That's, we talked a lot about gas detection. What questions we get asked a lot are, and we really didn't focus on in the article much, is the kind of entry you're doing. Is it horizontal versus vertical that directly determines the entry equipment you need? So, um, for example, if it's a vertical entry, you need some type of a tripod system or davit arm system to raise and lower people. That system has to be properly maintained. Um, and inspected. There's not much maintenance that's done other than periodically make sure it's clean and inspect the cable, but that is something that um, presents a failure point if, if your winch or um, retrieval device fails. And so there is uh, some, you know, some inspection points that you should do periodic in that equipment. Um, and that varies by manufacturer, but they're all pretty typical stuff. Um, some type of a winch with a cable and then some type of a pulley system on a tripod that you can raise and lower. So pretty straightforward. Um, and that's an important thing to pay attention to. And then when you put someone in a space, they'll wear in a harness. Um, typically this harness is a fall protection style harness and it's rigged using the back D-ring. Um, use of that back D-ring sometimes causes the D-ring area to fail. The keepers will break requiring you to take it out of service so another thing is just inspect that harness um i would say the harness is more likely to have damage from welding and cutting or chemical exposure and fail um prematurely and so you want to pay attention to that that harness um and and do a good competent person inspection on the harness periodically certainly before entry early in my career i had to regularly enter 200 barrel fermenters to retrieve spent dry hop bags I didn't know anything about confined space entry requirements. I was given a belt clip meter and went for it. I remember another brewer saying something along the lines of, if you pass out in there, I'll call 911, but I'm not coming in after you. There are obviously so many red flags there. Tell us about rescue and emergency planning requirements and what things should have looked like in that scenario. Yeah, so um, it's, a, it's a good area to discuss. It is... I would say in all the confined space regulations, the most commonly neglected area is proper uh, rigging for rescue and then a, a, the rescue plan itself. Most facilities don't have an adequate rescue plan. Most facilities tend to um, focus heavily on the entry part and sort of neglect rescue in general. Um, there's a tendency to rely on the local fire department. Um, Hey, if I call 911, the fire department's going to come and they'll do my rescue and they'll take care of my folks. Um, in theory, that's a good plan, but the reality is there's, there's a lot not time of variables. For yeah. Time being the big one. If you have a heart attack in a space, irrespective of the normal space hazards, a medical condition, a heart attack, or some other incident, possibly fall and hit your head and have a closed head injury. Um, if you stop breathing for some other reason, you have a very narrow window to be rescued. And frankly, there isn't time. So, so rigging for rescue, meaning you you have a retrieval system, your employees are trained on proper rescue techniques. They're trained on how to get someone out, how to get them away from the hole and how to receive the fire department EMTs or paramedics or both to get that person the care they need. That process takes training and time and is not intrinsically it, it's not something you can just do when it happens you have to practice it so that is something that folks just tend to really neglect um 
the other thing that happens is over reliance on the fire department, they'll, the fire department will actually come out. Sometimes they'll look at your space. They'll team up with you. Most fire departments are quite happy to do this. Most fire departments, unless it's a really rural area, have good capability for rescue. Um, these days, it's better and better. But part of the problem also that OSHA talks about and that I've experienced is if you rely on them and they go out of service for some reason or they're on another call, that squad or truck is no longer available to rescue your team. Um, and so now you don't have a rescue capability anymore and you don't get a phone call from dispatch saying, Hey, um, you know, engine seven or squat truck five is no longer available. They just go do their thing. And then if you need something, they're not there. It's a huge gap that could cause a problem. And so recognizing that and saying, how do we fix it is, is a really big deal. And that basically means it relies on the employer to come up with a really good non-entry rescue program. Now, employers can do entry-based rescue, but the reality is it's very, very difficult to turn someone into a um, technical rescuer with one or two trainings a year. It's, in fact, I'd say it's impossible. So there is this limitation where most breweries aren't even going to want to go down that path. So it does require some careful planning, rigging for rescue on the front end, and then working with your fire department to understand how they work, when they could be available, when they're not, um, possibly having standby rescuers in certain circumstances. And when um, when the money is available, training people to actually be entry-based rescuers. But th- these are all very complicated things and you can't just do them on the spot. I think the complicated factors, the complicated part of this is what keeps people from really actively working on it. And they just kind of throw up their hands and get frustrated. Um, there is a way to do it. There is a way through it. It just takes some time and effort. Makes sense. Hey, I've never seen these in the U.S. before, but when I was in brewing school, I remember touring some large German breweries, and they had these cool little, almost looks like a laptop bag that would hang on the wall, especially in large cellars where there's a potential for CO2 leaks. And it was like a breathing apparatus that you could snag off the wall real quick if you needed a short-term air supply. I'm wondering if you've seen these before, what you think about them, and if that's something that might work well in U.S. craft breweries? Totally interesting question. So um, um, the the device you're um, describing is essentially a relatively small compressed air bottle with an airline that comes off and that it's basically hooked to a plastic bag. It's a thick plastic bag that has a drawstring and you literally turn the bottle on and stick a plastic bag on your head and do what your mom told you not to do when you were a kid. <laughs> it's quite, it's quite an interesting feeling to put a plastic bag over your head, but what it's actually a nice little system because once you have that air flowing and you snug it up around your neck, not too tight, of course, it actually fills the air. The bag fills up with air and creates a positive pressure situation that pushes contaminants out and you can get five or 10 minutes of air depending on the size of the bottle. So they're, they're nice systems. They work beautifully. They're very simplistic. You don't have to be shaven. You can put them over glasses. Like there's a lot of great things from a rescue perspective about that. However, um, they're not designed to be used for entry. So they're only for rescue. So if you had a person in a space and there was, um, an entry-based rescue going on. In theory, you could put that on them quickly and get them some clean air. Yeah, and so that's an interesting use of that on a rescue side um, that allows you to keep them in the space and not move them um, and buys you time um, if, in fact, the issue is low oxygen or some other contaminant that's dangerous. Um, but the the problem with these, and we see it used more in mines, we see it used in 
for example, hydroelectric power plants years ago, we spent a lot of time in power plants and the lower levels have these um, self-contained rescuers at the bottom levels in case their fire alarm system goes off and introduces CO2, they can have an escape tool. We see them used in um, oil and gas um, and hydrogen sulfide environments as a rescue tool. So they're out there. The problem with it is, is when you go to put it on, generally you have to stop for a second, open the bag, pull the unit out, turn the bottle on. You can kind of do it when you're running away, but it's not as easy to do. And what we find sometimes is you focus overly on putting that on instead of escaping. So we tell people, look, if you have them, you grab it and you run, and then you only use it if you need to. But the goal is to get out of the space, not to wear the rescue unit. So, so we try to, we're a little careful. We try to, and we get them to practice because it seems simplistic and easy, but if you don't practice in an emergency, sometimes um, when seconds count, you can actually use it wrong. For example, a common thing is put the bag over your head, tighten it and forgot to turn the bottle on. I mean, that would be a disaster. So, so there's uses for it, but I don't think brewers should rush out and buy them necessarily. I think if a brewer had a really very large um, fermentation area with a lot of tanks and they had issues with venting of fermenters inside the space, maybe some vigorous fermentation that you're, you're building up CO2 within the space abnormally, and, and you're concerned about that, maybe having one or two is available. But I don't know that everyone should rush out and necessarily buy those unless they have some really unique circumstances. Cool. There's something called alternate entry. What's the deal with that? Yeah, so the thing about alternate entry, um, a lot of times what happens with confined spaces is um, they it's cumbersome to do all this. And one of the things that comes up is rescue. So if you have a situation where you can do alternate entry, um, then you can avoid the um, having to have someone on rescue standby. It helps. It just helps to manage the program um, and lessen the training. So it's not available to everybody, but basically um, temporary declassification and alternate entry give you options to enter a space still safely, but without having to deal with some of the complex um, issues surrounding it. So um, they're handy, but the difficulty is they're not always applicable. Um, alternate entry really is available to people when they can demonstrate that the only hazard posed in the space is an actual potential atmospheric hazard. In other words, there's no mechanical hazards. All mechanical hazards can be addressed without ever going into the space. Um, and that Continuous forced air ventilation is the only control you need. Um, so if you have a space that has only an atmospheric hazard and you can control that hazard by continuous forced air ventilation, you have monitoring data that supports this approach, then you can apply this alternate entry designation, which really just reduces the amount of regulation you need to have um, and, and, and it, or follow, and it eliminates that rescue issue because in theory, you, you've made it safe. Now, entry procedures still are pretty specific when you do that. You still have to be careful. You still have to monitor the gas detector. But alternate entry gives you a way to get into that space um, a little easier. Um, the, the trick with alternate entry, though, is you want to be careful. You don't want to use it widely. It has, um, it has um, people tend to use alternate entry frequently when it shouldn't be applied. Um, there's a lot of folks that misinterpret 
um, terminology and situations. And when you widely apply alternate entry, you do create some pretty serious hazards to the entrance. And so it's something that should be done on a limited basis, but it is optional and open to brewers um, if they feel that it's warranted. Um, Typically, we when we do classifications, we'll, we have a classification form we follow and we'll evaluate each space. And then if we think that the space is eligible for alternate entry, we'll make a note of that. Um, and then the, um, the client can actually collect some data on air monitoring to prove it. And then they can say, yeah, we can do an alternate entry. It's a bit of a process. Um, but there's also a non a reclassification as non-permit. That's a temporary thing. Um, that one, um, you can't have any atmosphere hazardous atmosphere at all um and you have to be able to control the other hazards from outside so it is definitely um an option as well you can't apply alternate entry and temporary declassification at the same space at the same time so again a competent person needs to look at each space and evaluate is it optionally available for reclassification or is it optionally available as a temp as a um using alternate entry so it's one of those things that um, you have to look at on a case-by-case basis and not use it too often. OSHA's perspective is, is that um, the confined space entry regulations are written to be used in full. Um, uh, and then these alternative schemes are just uh, short-term or limited use situations. Awesome. Any final advice? Make sure that you have your rescue plan set up. Make sure that you understand how to get people out of the space. Make sure that you're actually training on confined space, non-entry rescue. You're not actually talking about it and then moving on, but you're actually doing some drills. You're planning on it. You buy yourself or borrow from the local fire department a mannequin, put them in the space, set them up as you would normally go in and practice taking them out of the space. Like Those kinds of um, training evolutions are invaluable. at the end of the day, the chances of having a problem in a confined space are probably pretty low in most cases, but if you do, the consequences are severe um, and could lead to death. So you do want to be able to get those people out in a hurry. And I think that's out of everything related to confined space, that's probably the number one issue we see that just gets neglected. That was Andy Tricoli here on the Master Brewers Podcast. If your brewery needs help with confined space entry and rescue planning, check the show notes for a link to Andy's article in the Master Brewers Technical Quarterly. Or type confined into the industry's best search bar at mbaa.com. I joined District Mid-Atlantic back when it was dominated by large breweries and I was often one of the only craft brewers in attendance. I'm so glad I joined. That membership has been incredibly impactful to my career, and I've made so many lifelong friends from those meetings. If you're not already a member, I highly encourage you to join. And there's no time like the present because new members can use promo code BEER2021 or the link in the show notes to save 20% on dues. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. (laughs) 